Touch them all, Joe. <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal. Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. Our commitment to you, our listeners, is to uncover the stories from across the spectrum of sports and entertainment business. In this episode, we go deep into revenue management with Christos Nikotopoulos of Google and Derek Myers and Kevin Worsley of Rogers Sports and Media. Gentlemen, welcome. How are you? Good. Great. Good to see you. Good, Mark. How are you? Yeah, it's been it's been too long with a couple of you guys. Uh, Derek and I have seen each other a little bit more, uh, but it is awesome to have everyone together again, the band back together to to chat about some stuff that you're really passionate about. It's amazing. I, I can hear the Believe song being queued up any second. Well, we're going to work on that. Andrew, we'll, we'll get you some rights clearances for that one, okay? I think I know a guy who knows a guy. So I wanted to properly got to set the table for our chat today. Which of the three of you actually invented the term revenue management? I'm not sure any of us can take credit for that one. It's been around for a while. I tried to kill the term when I was at Rogers. Um when I started in the business in 97, at least on the rev side, it was a thing. So I have no idea when it started. Well, it would have started way back in the day when at CBC, when um, when they first brought a revenue management system up and running, which would have been like 92, 93. Yeah. Originated with by uh, Bob Cross down in the States. If you go way back, the airlines deregulated the industry back in the early 80s, and then seats effectively became revenue management. Seats were sold based on supply, demand, dynamic pricing, et cetera, et cetera. I have no idea if they used the term then, but but that's the first I've heard of it in, in the same way we um, we did it in television. All right. So let's let's step aside from you know the words itself. Uh, on the Backstage Project podcast, we've already spoken with many folks, people you know. Uh, you know, they've had roles like sales, partnerships, production, digital, social. So where does you know, revenue management, revenue planning, where does that fit into the mix you know, in, a, in a media company? I'd say it fits into the mix of any company. At, at the end of the day, it's just about you have assets, you have customers, you want to maximize return on those assets. And that's revenue management. It's, it's, it's really that simple and, of course, a lot more complicated. Um, auto companies do it, casinos do it, Disney, you, you name the company in and outside of media. Um, the, the principles of revenue management are, are very basic to selling. Um, there's some things we hear about that are obvious, pricing, planning, sales strategy, um, but the behind the scenes work when you strip it all down is, is very simple um, and, and very consistent across pretty much any industry that sells anything. All right. Well, what we're going to do for today is we're, we're going to keep it focused on media and we're going to you know, try and get a little nitpicky at times so our, our audience can connect back you know, the great work that you guys have been doing for upwards of 20 years, if not 25 years, and, and how that's made a difference to the, the product that people have seen you know, on television, on digital, and what have you. So looking back, you know, when I first joined that CTV Rogers Olympic Consortium where we all met, you know, it was the spring of 2008. By that point, none of you guys had arrived, and quite honestly, within about six months, not one of you, but all three of you appeared, and you had all left CBC. And so who at the consortium did you guys convince that the function of revenue management uh, was essential to our success? It was part of how CTV did, did business. So the idea of revenue management 
wasn't new to the broadcast industry, certainly at that point. It wasn't new to what the consortium needed. I met with um, the head of sales at the time, David Strickland, really informational. And he said, look, we're looking for a director of revenue management. And and my my feedback to him was, you need someone that can take revenue management, take strategy and planning and weave it into a much different thing. So when I met him, um, what I convinced them wasn't he needed revenue management. I convinced them that he needed revenue management plus many other things that were uh, deeper than what traditional broadcasters would do in RevMan. But the the revenue management um, job role need, it was clear from the the day when they first thought about creating the consortium because um, the discipline was living in CTV, Rogers, CBC well before then. And so thinking back with, to your CBC days. And I remember these chats you know, vividly now, Christos, that, that we were having with, you know, I'll throw Alon Markovich's name into the mix as well. And I know that you know, at your time at, at CBC, you also had, had, you know, digital and some partnership responsibilities while they were still doing the Olympic games. And then you came over to the consortium. And I remember the concept of, of product, I'll call it. And, and I know that that is a loaded term today. Um, Everything, everyone is a product manager. We're no, we're no longer managing brands. So how, I'm trying to remember how we resolve the difference between who comes up with the product and who builds the product and who sells the product. We certainly get who executes on the product. But what did you guys think at the time? And, and were, you, were you banging your heads against the wall a little bit too with, uh, with how the, the organization should have been running versus what you came from with CBC? Well, I think the product starts with the production team, the programming team. They're the ones delivering or giving you the assets that you're trying to build and monetize out. I think the biggest challenge back when you look back at the consortium was it was a plan that was you know, never thought of before, I would say. You know, the amount of television networks running almost 24-7, just how how to how to back to what Christos was saying, how to develop that into tangible assets for somebody to look at and buy because nobody's ever seen it before so when you think back to 2008 that was just i that was the massive undertaking i'm glad you brought us there kev because you know thinking back to you know that that project you know it was a games like never before it was a rights fee like never before it was a production effort like never before you know no question you know the product at the end or the project was an overwhelming success you know across the board both for vanock as the organizers and for us as the consortium as broadcasters but what's it like when you guys were walking into that job you know 18 months before you know the opening ceremony on february 12 2010 and you're told you're going to need to deliver a revenue number like never before it, it was it was amazing that's that's why i showed up um <laughs> Um, what was interesting about the consortium, it, it took me a week to figure out that, that it was different. Um, and part of the reason why, uh, Kev, Derek, and I work so well together, we had, we had the history with CBC and HockeyNet in Canada and, and we had wanted to try different things. Um, I, I love my time at CBC, so this isn't a knock on them, but when I got to the consortium and, and Derek and Kev and sales teams and others talked, we had the ability to invent. We had the ability to do things that maybe before it had been asked once or twice, it was a known, it wasn't possible. All of a sudden the possible was was open. 
Um, and it wasn't like we were any smarter. We just kind of had the, in my view, the handcuffs taken off and we had both the need to hit that number you talked about and the, the innovation and creativity allowance to really kind of go, go where we had never gone before. And that actually made it fun. So hitting that number like never before, um, was, was fun, but it couldn't have been done without that willingness to do things different and without people who who can kind of run really fast and invent uh, along the way and, and that's what made it successful well, that was that was the inherent advantage of the setup at, at the consortium was you know it was a tight group it was a it was a small team when you know speaking you know i, I came from we all came from cbc and uh it it takes a long time to move that ship sometimes and that was the advantage we had at the consortium when we had anybody had an idea you were sitting outside of their office and you'd have that conversation straight away you'd walk across to a producer um and say hey like what do you think of this idea and and be, yeah you can noodle it and you know decision making was just that much easier and uh and everybody had defined roles uh, and we leaned on people for their expertise but you know, a lot of people brought a lot of different things to the table. We, we got asked questions all the time from our production team and uh, from our leadership team about pricing and strategy. And, and we were constantly asking questions about production and, um, you know, how do we package all this stuff up together? And so to me, that was the biggest change after, you know, I was at CBC for 19 years. And like I said, it can be a, a pretty uh, slow ship to steer sometimes, any big organization like that. that. For me, that was the fundamental difference at the consortium. Far more nimble. I agree. Kev, you have anything to add in there? You really had no time to be slow. Yeah, and there's that. Right? Like, I mean, you have this, you know, there's only one chance where we talk about being nimble and being quick. It was impossible to be slow. And and let's not forget, too, I, I think we all started in the fall of, of 2008, but it wasn't just a 17-day plan. We, we had content, content started getting produced a year in advance going out on our print platforms in particular, but also on TV, radio, and digital. So, um, you know, to, to Kevin's point, we had to run. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, that was something that, you know, I haven't really talked a lot about it, except for maybe with Don Young on, on the podcast here, that, yeah, it was for sure the 17 days of the games, but it was a, it was a runway leading to those games, you know, like never before. And Don did a great job talking about, you know, the athletes, but beyond the athlete spots and the way that the consortium embraced that and you guys monetize that, there are also all those, you know, kind of episodic serial shows that, that appeared like, you know, Over the Bolts, for example. So th there was a lot of net new assets that maybe you guys were familiar with from your CBC days, but a lot of it was net net new for the folks uh, at the, I guess a lot of them were coming out in from TSN who are more on the production side. Yeah, and, and it wasn't just broadcast. We'd worked with radio, the Globe and Mail, uh, CP24. It was it was like like Derek said. It was it was a year out and truly multi-platform in areas that some of us worked in and some of us didn't. But it didn't matter because the the content and the viewer and the user and the reader kind of led the way, and and the rest it really wasn't that hard. I mean, you, you work you were working on the Olympics in Vancouver. Um, there's a, there's a sense of obligation and pride to kind of make, make it right. And it was fun. I don't know any other word for it. It was, it was easily one of the best experiences I've had, uh, professionally and personally. Well, thinking about that, that, that time when we were together, and of course I agree with everything you said, by the way, Chris, also about the best time kind of professionally and personally, it was an amazing time, but thinking about, you know, that period of 08 and 09, I mean, the world 
the world was a different place, obviously, than it is today. A uh, couple things, obviously, the financial crisis, 07 into 08. Um, and then one thing that I'm sure all of you remember, but the audience probably won't remember is, you know, we had, there, there was a, not a, not, not a pandemic to the degree that we're obviously dealing with today, but there, there was H1N1. It, it was present. And I, I remember, and you guys will know better than me, but I remember that, well, first of all, we existed in our own kind of little bubble, if you will, different bubble than today's standards, but our own bubble in the media business where, you know, we didn't have any cuts. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't sacrifice the quality of the product just because, you know, the, the global advertising environment or the environment in Canada might've been in a little bit of a depression. And we also, I mean, I think there was a, a big reliance perhaps on the government or different levels of government actually giving us sponsorship. And that money, if I remember correctly, you're going to help clear this up for me. A lot of that money went to the vaccine and we didn't actually see that. So maybe take us back to that time, how you remember those events happening and if they at all impacted kind of the, the mission that we were all on. I, I don't remember the H1N1 as much being an impact. I, I clearly remember the financial crisis, particularly with some of the autos. So when we were talking to um, some of the banks and some of the autos, the ability to pay and to ask for the type of numbers that we were asking for, um, timing couldn't have been worse. I mean, we were asking for some of the biggest sponsorship numbers that anyone has ever asked for in a time when they were uh, literally declaring bankruptcy. It just it just didn't make sense. Um, but the trust that people like Pele and some of our sales folks built with these folks the fact that it was Vancouver 2010 and there would be an, another one, not another one like it again, allowed us to do different things creatively. I can't get into the details too much, but do things creatively that broke traditional rules and how you transact with partners. And because we were partners and we presented ourselves as partners directly with the clients in partnership with the agency, we, we were able to do things to make sure the funding got secured in a way that was in some cases very unorthodox, but um, but we had to find a creative solution to it. And uh, and in most cases we did. Is there anything from the three of you, from your experience that uh, you, you can share a little more about without giving away anything that's still confidential all these years later? The only thing I'd add, not so much on the financial part, but I remember debates with the digital team and Elon and others on well, should should we develop for Chrome? I wasn't not Chrome. It was Android. Should we develop for Android? Because Windows was still king, and Apple. And you know, in hindsight, think about it. Like, should you develop for Chrome and and Android today? Like, it's it's unheard of. Back then, it was an actual debate, and we eventually conceded yes, we should. That's like what 10, 11 years ago, about twelve, I guess. Um, and streaming was. Streaming wasn't new. Certainly, certainly not new. Sports and streaming. Um, happened often and it was fairly big on companies like TSN and Sports and CBC. But the execution that we delivered um, in Vancouver was was precedent setting. So there were debates about how many people are going to watch? How are we going to sell it? Are we going to oversell it? Are we going to undersell it? We had a whole plan on if we oversold it. And and, and Alon and I, if you, if you talk to him, just remind him, we had very vigorous debates on what the numbers should oh, be. Oh, I remember. My office was next to his. Those walls were thin. Yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> I remember the RDS site crashing on day one. Did it? I forgot that. Did it really? Yeah. During the opening ceremony. Did you guys always remember when we fall down? Like, I remember when we got back up. 
Yeah, I don't remember that either. But it just goes to show you, like all these things were, you know, we were we were doing things that hadn't really been done before, like to that scale. We were debating: should we produce for this platform? Now that's crazy to even ask. Should we sell more video? Is anyone really going to watch to the level that we think they're going to? Now, that, that's that's not even a debate anymore. Um, but th those are the kind of things in that window leading up to the game. Financial crisis was part of it for sure, but the the unknown and, and the requirement to invent. And, and do things that we had to find ways to convince buyers and clients that this made sense, but also have a backup plan just to make sure that what we had dreamed up was actually possible. And I don't think we missed on many. I think for the most part, we, we were pretty good at, at dreaming it up and delivering it. Hey, I was there in the trenches uh, while you guys were entertaining and doing hospitality uh, you know, dur during the Olympics. And uh, we, we, we delivered, I think, and I guess Christos, you had already moved on at that point, but you know, I think that Derek and Kevin and I had a chance to get a lot more intimate with each other around um, the London Olympics and yeah. just just how more ambitious everything was, which is, we're not, we're not going to talk in depth about that, but I think the number of platforms, the number of devices, uh, not being limited with streaming to on mobile to just Bell doing that to Bell customers, but us doing that as well, although of course, Customers had to be on Wi-Fi to do that on our platforms, but that's that's a topic for 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 another time. And what's interesting now, all these years later, those two executives that were responsible for those mobile deals, you know, now they're running Bell Media, and but none of us work there anymore, so we'll we'll, we'll let we'll let them figure that out. No, no, apparently, nobody works there anymore. Sorry, well, too too soon. That's okay. No, no, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But but it is it is an absolute fair point, and that's kind of. Kind of the sad part when I'm as I do this podcast, there's a lot of great folks who just aren't there anymore. But you know what? There's a lot of people we are very fond of who are there and are doing their best to, uh, you know, innovate in a very interesting environment. So there's a million dollar question that, that I've been waiting to ask you guys. Okay, so when it comes to like the Super Bowl, you know, we typically hear about the cost of a 30 second spot. So help the audience understand. This is just a warm up question. Help the audience understand how you place a value on the coveted 30 second spot. I was going to say the value is what somebody's willing to pay. Just throwing a dart is not an appropriate answer. <laughs> well, not not for your current employer, but anyway, you can look back in time when you had other employers. Sorry, I don't think that the there's not a quintessential equation that says uh, dollars for every thousand viewers, which is the typical CPM, equates to a large event. Uh, a large event. It's honestly, I believe, you know, what we think somebody's willing to pay. And you have to look at what other people have paid as well for, you know, a similar asset. And that's using your industry knowledge over the course of you know, 10, 20 years to figure out what that fine line is. So with that one client from uh, wanting to buy all those gold medal hockey spots, it was simply, what do we think they're willing to pay? And you start a negotiation. You start high and you you kind of figure out along the way uh, where you think it's going to go. Christos, I know you were there in the IBC with me, so. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Do you remember, Kev, when, so we're talking now about like the, near the end of the games, gold medal hockey game, we knew it would be one of the highest viewed um, uh, events ever. And like Kevin said, a 30 second spot, you know, in math terms, it's a cost per thousand viewers. So the more viewers based on whatever sort of standard people are willing to pay, you end up paying more absolute, like an absolute absolute cost goes up if more people watch. So for gold medal, we were in uncharted territory. It was like, I forget the number, millions and millions. 
And I remember Kev, if you remember this, Kev, you, you went around and you had a, po a pool going. We had some of our key clients and you were asking everyone, what do you think the gold medal game is going to do? What do you think the gold? And they were like 10 million, 7 million, 6 million. And then he'd follow up his pool question with, you know, I know the spot's going to cost, and I forget the number, I'll make it up. The, Scott, the spot's costing $250,000, which is never heard before. But this will be the most efficient, cheap spot you've ever bought, ever. And look, you've even said the number is going to do this. But because the absolute number of that spot was so huge, it's not like we sold everything so easy. There was a couple that did buy it. But because the number was so huge, it was just too big to swallow. Even though from a math point of view, efficiency point of view, it was one of the cheapest things that they'd ever buy. But to Kevin's point, their willingness at that point hit a ceiling because the absolute number was just so bloody big. Whereas um, if it was a half hour comedy show, you might actually get a premium on that just because you can you can pay for the number. So that's the balancing act. That's more the art versus the science that they talked about. Depends on what the market's willing to pay. But I just remember that moment you walking around, Kev, asking everybody, what are you going to pay? What are you going to pay? And uh, and you were doing the rounds. I think it was over dinner. It was over steak. It was it was hilarious. Now, we're going to come back to this, in more, I think, in talking about more about today's reality and, and the concept of auctions. But but we're not we're not off the Olympics, you know, just yet. Almost almost off the Olympics. I just wanted to clarify for the audience, you know, when you talk about the value, like, this, let's say, the value of $250,000, let's say that's how much someone eventually paid for that spot. Where, where is that spot located in, you know, the two and a half, three hour broadcast window? You're paying that much wherever you want it. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much. He's not kidding. I, I had um, sitting in the gold medal hockey game. We had worked with the team, um, us three, Gavin Roth on literally for closing ceremonies, what advertiser was going to run in what spot. So we were very careful, very fair, all those things. And I was streaming and I had clients around me and literally when a spot would run, we knew which one was queued up next. And we had to show, we didn't have to, but we showed the client that it was running. And as soon as it ran, everyone was happy that the intensity of the closing ceremonies, gold medal game for that kind of money, Kevin's right. It's it's either fairness or it's wherever they want if they're paying 250000 You know what you just reminded me of? Because I was sitting behind the GM client at the gold medal game and if you recall, during the Olympics, we had we got Pelly yeah. to work with the IOC to guarantee in-game hockey breaks at at scheduled times, and I forget what period it was, but there was just an elongated period of time yeah. where there was no stoppages. Right, I remember that. And if yeah. you missed that next stoppage at like the ten-minute mark or the four-minute mark. The break goes away. And I remember we made that break by like, I want to say it was like 45 seconds. I was sitting in the stands because I had, I was looking at the same uh, role you were looking at crystals with the commercial placements and the GM client was sitting in front of me. I was like, Oh my God, please just have a stoppage. I was sitting there, go offside somebody. Cause it was, I would have liked to see you jump on the ice at that point. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah, it was pretty close. You need to get the commercial break in. <laughs> Anything. That's why I get. That's why I get streakers at the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> need to get that extra break. But but everything we're describing, it's it's unique to something like the Olympics, Super Bowl maybe. Um, I mean, the Grammys were on last week. Like those live events that are big, especially something like a closing ceremony. There's a uniqueness to it. Like you're not hand placing spots and monitoring 
run times and stuff like you just never would do that for the olympics absolutely for 99 of everything else not really live sports is a bit of a unique beast and then the olympics and things like super bowl are completely they're a completely different operation yeah like live sports is definitely a unique beast we, I mean, we saw similar uh market reactions you know most recently when the raptors made their run to the championship in 2019 um, you know, trying to figure out like, <laughs> what do we think the audiences are going to be? Because they, you know, they were pretty good through rounds one and two. Of course, they skyrocketed with that game seven, uh, game seven win over Philadelphia, and then into round three. But into the finals, it was off the charts, and you yeah. know, we're changing our estimates and our rates constantly, trying to to get as much as we could. And um, it was it reminded me a lot of the Olympics. A lot of the Olympics, trying to figure out, um, you know, how much should we charge? And clients, advertisers, asking like, "Hey, I want to be. We want to be placed in that first break after the Raptors, you know, were awarded the trophy." And you know, we had we put together a plan, and you know, it, it worked out really well for us. And for me, 2019 was probably the most um, comparable to, uh, to the Olympics, and maybe you know, 2015 and 2016 when the Jays made their runs deep into the playoffs as well. Was a similar similar thing the audiences were just they were off the charts uh like you know yeah really, that's a really good example yeah stuff we hadn't seen before so it doesn't happen all that often when it does it's pretty exciting do you remember derek when we were when we first got to rogers um i forget the players but the jays just acquired a bunch of great players jose reyes was one of them yeah. i forget there's about four or five six players and all of a sudden they went from uh mid to last place to being a contender overnight and we literally had a okay different game plan yeah back to kev's original point of what are people willing to pay from a actual spot rate to sponsorship to the bigger picture we literally rewired the entire sales strategy revenue strategy because the jays picked up four or five great players um because that will translate to excitement enthusiasm higher audiences perception of higher value and the propensity to pay um will go up and uh and that was one another example where we really leaned in differently than before but the raptors run and win for sure that's probably that, that's a, a very comparable example well even the jays you're right chris i remember that vividly when the jays uh, did all that that maneuvering around the winter um uh, winter meetings and the leading into the season but in 2015 when they got Tulowitzki and then they got price the audience has literally tripled overnight and they never, they never stayed down again. And for the last two months of the season, it was off the charts, and we redid the whole strategy um, because the audiences were there, and there was so much excitement. And that's the, I think that's the best part of live sports is just that, that, that excitement in, you know, when you're in the office and talking to clients, and everybody wants to be a part of it, and especially when you have a chance to go to the games, you walk down the street and go to the games. So, um, definitely unique times. Well, I don't want to leave this for a second because there's another piece to this that I want to make sure the audience understands. So clearly you guys, you know, you're, you're battle tested. You've done this numerous times over the three of you in all kinds of different roles for different, different broadcasters, media companies. When you look back a couple of years ago and you're selling, you know, the Raptors in the playoffs, like clearly there's more demand. So a higher value of that CPM and higher value of that spot for the advertiser, but your sales team, the ones who are talking to the actual client who's going to make the purchase decision, like, are they, are they as anxious about this as you are? Are they ready to roll when you say, we got to raise those rates, go, go give the client a call. I would say yes, for the most part. 
Yeah, I mean, it's in their best interest, I think, for, well, it is in the best interest that sales drives rates higher without getting to the extreme. Like, you still want to have a happy client at the end of the day. Nobody wants to feel ripped off or taken advantage of on either side of the equation, whether it's the client or the vendor of the spot. So it's it's, it's finding a, a good medium and driving not just a good rate, but the appropriate rate. So you're getting the right value for your product. Well, it's just, I, I was just going to talk about credibility. Um, you know, we can't sell stuff. We can't sell through what's not credible. And so we spent a lot of time in the sales team was front and center with that at all times. And, you know, uh, to Kevin's point, the customers want to be happy. We want the customers to be happy. And so, you know, if we're trying to, uh, if we go out there, and we're not selling credibility. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to make our revenue targets. We're not going to be able to sell those premium value spots. Agreed. I think the nuance in sports is, I mean, agencies work on the behalf of their customers to make sure that that the investments are appropriate, fair, driving business results, all those things. They have perspective across all the different channels and partners and, and agencies are smart and they do a great job. What's different with sports is that particularly when you're selling sponsorship, the, the client directly is also involved. Yeah. And their motivations for buying into something sometimes are different. Uh, not different, bad or different, good. They're just different. Whether it's um, for example, Scotiabank and their loyalty program with, with the NHL or, or, or that direct connection with the customer versus working with the agency and that sort of three-way stool that we used to call it the consortium creates a whole different dynamic. So when you're going into sponsorship and you're asking them for a certain amount of money for exclusivity, which is not, which is not about spots anymore, that dynamic is very different and very nuanced. And it's not just about, um, you know what is the spot worth it's about it, what kind of value is this overall investment going to drive to their brand to their businesses to their stores to their reputation and that math is much harder to figure out so you're leaning more on emotion and art than you are about science and value at that point yeah that makes a makes a ton of sense and looking looking back and then quickly looking forward again you know since we all last worked together i guess for derek and kevin that would have been 2012 for us you know, the role of of data as let's say become more important or at least different. Um, and let's face it, Christos, you know, you're, you're now working for a company that have, you know, probably has more data than anyone else on the planet. How, how have you guys seen kind of the, the, the trade of revenue management and pricing and product? How have you seen that change, you know, since we were all working together to kind of where, where is it today and, and how much is, data and bidding and auctions and placement like is that is that here yet like wh where are we uh, when we're looking specifically at you know your old jobs in the you know in the tv business uh, compared to you know me buying a an ad word on google today so i, th I think you've asked a lot of questions there i'm not sure where to start um <laughs> <laughs> i would say what you said to start off is probably the most important the the usefulness of data the need for data that's not new at all like every company from the beginning of time has been using some version of data to better inform decisions, period. Somebody mentioned uh, the revenue management system, or I mentioned the revenue management system at CBC. That was the first time, if I recollect back in my, in my time, that was effectively the first predictive modeling uh, engine that I worked on. And that was back in the mid nineties. I mean, Derek, you helped implement and build that machine. When it comes down to it, a lot of the pricing decisions, at least the recommendations on the pricing decisions today, we'd say it's machine learning and AI. Then it was revenue management, algorithm X, whatever they called it then. So 
the notion of, of taking data and having it inform is absolutely not new. I think what's different for me and my and my transition into sort of the tech and digital world is allowing data and tech and targeting and things of that nature to offer customers better outcomes. And to me, that's the new, that's, that's what's different for me is the proof of you sell somebody with X and that's going to sell them more cars or it's going to drive their brand value up. That's the difference in sort of my prior life and my life today that the, the end customer and they're hitting their business objectives is the goal as opposed to in traditional revenue management or at least what I'm used to, it's maximizing revenue on your assets. Now, there's so much more out there of everything. It's fragmentation, it's people, it's, it's everything. Unless you can prove that this investment is going to sell you something, sell trucks, sell whatever, it doesn't really matter how much of it you have and it doesn't really matter how smart you are. If you can't prove it, it, it loses value very, very quickly. And to me, that's the fundamental shift that's also not new, but becoming more prevalent everywhere, not just in tech anymore, in television and radio and everything else in between. So Derek and Kev, since you're still, you know, in the media game and covering television and radio and digital, what, uh, how is, how is what Christos is talking about? How has that come into your world more? Well, I mean, the one thing I have noticed over the years is that the marketers know what they want and they have an infinite amount of data on their own customers. They know what their customers watch. They know where they travel. They know where they live. They know how they get to one of their franchises. They know all this information. So they are becoming more specific, I would say, in what they ask for and what they need, because uh, they know. And I think that is what I see one of the biggest factors in, in data. They're not looking for generic opportunities. They're, nobody comes and says, you know, you know, hi Rogers or hi Bell Media, you know, Tell me what assets you got. They're coming in mainly with a specific thing in mind because I, I think they know what they want. So, I mean, that would be, I think my, that's what I think is the greatest impact so far of data. No, it's good to hear. Yeah, look, I, I think pricing is a lot harder now than it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, the fragmentation, the fact that, um, you know, consumers can go to so many different places to consume content uh, and it makes it more challenging to monetize that. And certainly now the currency is different. You know, where the currency before was an adult 2554 demographic, which was pretty standard across the board. And we were selling contextual environment. You know, you want to buy the gold medal game of the Olympics, or you want to buy game seven, game six of the Raptors in the NBA finals. You know, n now really what we're selling is audience and it's different. And, um, and, and we're still playing, we're kind of playing in both the old, <clears throat> the old environment and the new environment as well, right? When you got two feet in there, it's it's kind of hard and, and, and trying to come up with a, a common currency or a single currency. Um, and I, th I think the industry, you know, as, as an industry, you've got a long ways to go in terms of um, making it easier to work with us. Uh, obviously, uh, Christos isn't isn't in that space it's a little bit easier to work with uh with his company but from you know the traditional media companies is one of the things we're we're uh battling with is uh, automation and making it simple to transact with us and to chris's point earlier is showing that the roi on investing with us and why it's worth it and uh so that, that's that's you know a big challenge for us 
what Kev kicked off with is is really important that customers have they know clients to know their customers they know them really well it was I mean, back in the days when we were all working together at CBC in, in 2000, 21 years ago, I went to a revenue management conference in Atlanta and listened to Harris Casino and Disney talk about their CRM system and the level of detail they knew about their customers. The predictive nature of what that data would tell them is was shocking. I had, I had no idea. It was a big eye-opener for me. That was 21 years ago. And to Derek's point is they've always had that. And now marrying that to media and media decisions has been slower for television and broadcast, but that's where it's all going. Um, you know, the tech side of the house was kind of born in that environment. It's not certainly not perfect, but the use of customers, first party data and machine learning and all those, all those, all those things we talk about does drive customer success forward faster. Um, and when broadcasters there's been momentum and there's been movement, but to Derek's point, it's not as fast as as maybe the industry wants it to be. But once they catch up, it'll be it'll be a game changer because that's what the customers want. Yeah, I have a couple more. We'll call them forward-looking questions to deal with before we kind of wrap here today. So, so one of them is, and I, I'm just going to say Sportsnet now, but it could be any kind of OTT platform. It, it could even be it could be even be YouTube, Christos, but. Um, when, when you're selling kind of linear, when you're selling, you know, Raptors game seven and whatever that was, the uh, semifinal of the conference, um, when you're looking at the audience that's going to be streaming it, even if they're just showing up for that day and, and buying it for the day, are you, are you valuing those spots different to that audience than you are the audience that's uh, interacting with the content through, you know, your BDU partner? And currency, really. Um... You know, in 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 the streaming world, we're, we're literally selling the audience, and when we're in the linear world, we're selling the, the you know we're selling a spot, and it's um for, for me it's for us it's fundamentally different. Yeah, the uh, not a great and, answer. I know that. No, that's maybe okay, that, that Christos. Maybe maybe you can help us a bit from your you know your experience. We so looking back in time. You know, the consortium did deals with YouTube, I think, for both Olympic Games. I, I know you guys have done a lot more in the streaming and local, you know, virtual MVPD in the U.S. Like, are you, and I'm assuming you're selling on behalf of, of those those partners, too. You know, is it is there a difference between kind of the linear the linear world and this and the OTT world in pricing of these spots for you? Um, it depends what you're asking. So when you're saying OTT, usually if you say OTT, I think Netflix, Hulu, Prime, etc. If you mean streaming of linear content, yep, um, it, of like Sportsnet or whatever, it, it depends on how it's sold. So there's, and again, this may have changed, and, and Derek and, and Kevin are more experts these days than I am. But there's there's typically two executions, and sports is a hard one because usually it's live. But usually there's live linear, which often is simply just another screen. Think of it as just another simulcast. So whether it's on broadcast or on a tablet or on a phone generally that commercial just passes through and it's valued as long as somebody sees it and the measurement system, which is numerous, picks up that tone. That's a linear feed regardless of screen. And then there's the on-demand version, whether it's OTT or otherwise, that typically has its own set of um, strategies on how to properly sell it because it's not tied to the measurement and currency that is selling a TV spot. Uh, typically on the broadcast side, again, you're talking, the, these other two gentlemen know better than me these days, but typically 
that is sold more in the traditional or more in the digital model. It's more audience driven. It's more like there's frequency capping conversations. It's a bit of a different nuanced sell, but at its core, you're still dealing with a show against an audience. Um, what what I think Derek was getting, and Derek, like, I don't know a lot about this, but when you're getting into selling audiences, you're getting the selling things outside of a particular show. You're selling a segment of auto intenders or XYZ that is very different than selling a spot within a particular show. You're selling a cluster of people who are interested in certain segments of XYZ. Depending on the technology that can live linear or that can live over the top, it's not really defined to one or the other. It's really about the technology that sits on top of everything to allow that execution to actually happen. And if I, does that right, Derek? Did that, what did I just say sound right? You said that you said that much more eloquent, eloquently than I tried to say it. Alrighty, there you go. You have to remember that the audience really doesn't know these answers. I mean, you you guys are kind of the the actuaries that sit in the back room, if you will, in other industries where people don't get it. Yeah, maybe even the salespeople don't get it, but but they but they count on you to tell them, you know, this is how much you need to get for this this asset or that asset. I kind of have one final question just around kind of the, the old world and looking into the new world. And I know we're not there yet, so I'm not looking to make this too much of a leading question, but you know, we have seen in the US um, with NBC in particular, uh, they have created a, a watch and bet broadcast. They did it with golf a little ways back. Um, we Betting is coming to Canada eventually. You know, how, how do you see um, valuing you know, an alternate stream of a, you know, a Leafs-Habs game on a Saturday night that's more conducive to placing prop bets than what you would typically put, you know, on Hockey Night in Canada on CBC. The question I would ask, Mark, and maybe, again, it's, it, the bigger question is, what's the business model moving forward, right? There's historically, television has been an ad-supported business model with a part of it, often it was 50-50, that was subscription-based. As it evolves further and further, the bigger question is, will the ad-supported television business model survive or will it shift completely or in part to heavier skew towards subscription-based um, uh, revenue models? And as you're seeing, you know, the pandemic accelerating, like Disney is like 100 million subscribers or something crazy. Uh, that's the more, I think that's the bigger question. What is the model moving forward? So whether it's live streaming and sports, are customers willing to pay for um, subscription and watch ads or anything else in between? That's a big question. What's the role of shorter form content versus longer form content? I've always um, advocated shortly after I left Rogers that shorter form content will always be the business model of uh, ads, mobile, et cetera, et cetera, and long form content unless I'm missing something, that slope continues to get slippery and slippery and slippery as amazing content continues to come from producers who want to be on uh, dist global distributed platforms with big budgets and total creative freedom like HBO and Stars and Netflix and everybody else in between. To me, that's the more core fundamental question that would keep me up at night if I was uh, either in the broadcast industry or where I am now because it hasn't hit yet. It's just slowly evolving, but, but that to me is the curious question. Kevin and Derek, do you have anything that you want to add into the mix on Christos's repositioning of the question? The one thing that I don't think gets talked about enough is scale. And right now, like when we see the new NFL deals, you know, Amazon now has Thursday night football and the remainder of the games are split up between 
Disney, Fox, CBS, there's an advantage to having that type of scale for the NFL because those stations are in every single home. Amazon Prime is not in every single home. Netflix is not in every single home. Uh, the NFL and the, the teams make a lot of money off of the mass scale from getting their product out to the masses. Whether a lot of it's simply just merchandise too. So, I mean, there is going to be a tipping point. I'm not sure how far away that tipping point is. I, I think it's quite a ways away where you're going to see, you know, leagues move to a 100% streaming world in their home markets uh, because the rights fees are, you know, pretty large. Uh, and we take a look at, you know, the NHL right now. The one advantage that broadcasters do have is we produce things. It's not saying that a streamer can't produce anything, but they're they're just not there yet for live sport. And it is it's not simple. And to you know, recreate that engine costs money, takes time. So I would say that you know while you're going to see, I think more things evolve into let's call it companion outlets. I think there's still going to be a broadcast component in the near future, similar to what's happening with the latest NHL deal in the U.S., where you know ESPN Plus uh, has now an, an an NHL component, but it's still on the main network. So it is a they're trying to straddle the line between ad-based model and subscription-based model, and and doing it quite successfully, I would say. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Listen, these are not easy topics to discuss, you know, whether whatever we can say or not say. I mean, I think the audience is just trying to wrap their heads around it. I'm glad we didn't go into the difference in the, in the television business model between Canada and the U.S. because they are vastly different. Uh, before we kind of wrap our chat today, there are, there are a few questions we'd like to ask our guests that, that come on the podcast. And I think just in the interest of time, we'll probably just have one question and I'll, and I'll ask you guys to kind of piggyback on one another as you answer it. So for people that are just coming into their, you know, media careers that are looking to get on the revenue side, maybe strategic sales and planning side, strategy side, what advice do you have for them to be successful early on in their careers? I would say, uh, well, Chris and I are kind of in the same boat. We've got kids who are just kind of coming through their post-secondary education. Um, what I would say is uh, have a short-term plan, stick to the plan, get to the finish line, then start your next two-year plan. Um, you know, stuff, the world changes so quickly. Uh, being able to set, you know, and identify goals for yourself um, and to achieve those goals is super important. And to me, that, that's the paramount. To me, that's paramount. And that's the advice I give to anybody that I, who's uh, coming out of school is the advice I give to my own kids. Um, there's a lot of value in setting goals for yourself and achieving them and and uh, and having an open mind as you're going through and, and then moving moving the markers as you go. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I, I was I was I was going to say the exact same thing because I think that's the smartest advice, but I'll think of something different. Um, I would say every every place I've gone to that's been amazing. It's because of the people that were that surrounded what amazing looked like. So if you can find and it's it's harder when you're younger in your career. But if you can find a place that has great people, people you can learn from, people that can mentor you, 
people that'll, that'll give you the chance to light or break some things, um, that goes a long, long, long way. So I would say find people that are great uh, and will teach you and bring you along. And the one thing I would add just from a more tangible is what you talked about earlier, learn data, learn the impact of data in all lines of business because it is the crux, I think, of the decision-making process for multiple people, whether it's your, whether you're the vendor, you're the customer, the agency, client, try to learn data. It, it, if we're talking now, it, it's learn data. And to piggyback on the Christos's point is, you know, when you find a company that's willing to teach you and have people around you that are willing to teach you, you know, stick with it, learn as much as you can because the industry is changing on a constant basis. Well, I think looking back at you guys on this Zoom over the last, you know, about, a, about an hour and thinking back to, you know, your resumes, which I took a peek at on LinkedIn, you know, Christos and Derek, you know, you've been together for the better part of 25 years. I know you're not working directly together now. Kevin and Derek, it's been at least a, almost a solid 20 years. Let's call it a safe 15, you know, talking about people, talking about learning, um, I enjoyed my time working with all you guys, obviously Derek and Kevin. I appreciate you guys coming on here. It's been great to catch up. So for the audience, you know, initially the only way I got acceptances for these guys to come on here is because I created a title for the meeting of, you know, the OG of Rev Man. So the old gangster of Rev Man, which these guys very much are. I had to look that up. I had no idea what that meant, which means I'm officially old. I thought it was great. That, that, that title is, is going to be etched in perpetuity in my in my memory <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks again guys thanks mark thanks mark good to see everybody thanks for the invite mark the backstage project podcast is brought to you by ready set go they help organizations create extraordinary digital products to learn more go to readysetgo.design if you would like to get in touch with mark and the team at the backstage project podcast please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com